campaign, 40 years, all the videos and the stories about ISIS, right? Going around, beheading journalists and Christians, forcing uh, Christian girls and women into sex slavery, crucifying men, women, and children uh, who uh, will not recant their faith in Jesus and convert to their rather strange form of Islam. Um, it's not. Uh, no secret that if you were to go to many places in the world, um, you know, 2,000 years after Jesus died, uh, there's still plenty of persecution that goes on. And I'm grateful that it, you know, in America, we don't face that kind of persecution. I, I have no fear, really, that someone's going to come through the doors this morning um, and walk down the center aisle and, and a gun to your head of mine and say, such and such, or I will shoot you. You know, and I've thought about that occasionally. You know, what would happen if that did happen? And, you know, there's certain things I, I think I'm willing to die for. And I think there's probably certain other things I feel like, you know, come down the aisle and say, you know, put the gun to my head and say, recant that Jesus is the Savior of the world or will shoot you. I'll just be like, I think, I hope I will be like, ah, it's going to be right here. So you give me the first shot. But if they come down the aisle and they say, you know, deny the pre-tribulational rapture, or we're going to shoot you up for the rapture. What rapture? <laughs> no, we uh, we don't face that kind of persecution here in America, and I'm grateful for that. But we do live in a time of, of other kinds of increasing persecution. Not always in, in such overt ways. Uh, but there was... 2000, starting in 2014, the California University system decided that any campus group that was going to be recognized and be able to use campus facilities and something and such had to be completely non-discriminatory in how it chose its leadership. So in that process, University Christian Fellowship lost its standing on 23 campuses of the California uh, University system because it would not amend its rules to allow people who did not profess faith in Christ to be leaders of their group. Remember, it's InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. So it meant that they could no longer meet on campus, they couldn't participate in campus fairs and activities, that sort of thing. Now I think it's funny because does that also, that also should mean then that if there's a PETA group on campus, they should have to allow somebody who works at Tyson to be in their leadership, right? But uh, so far, those sorts of rules are only enforced against Christian groups. How about this one? Army briefing that listed uh, evangelical Christianity and Catholicism as examples of religious extremism. Yeah, those, those extremist Catholics. Huh? Wow. <laughs> Going around, holy water, <laughs> saying the rosary. You know, they do stand in sit a lot. What's that? They do stand and sit a lot, so. That's true. Pretty extreme. Right. Well, that way I don't have to do squats that day. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean really. Um, another military officer sent a letter to his subordinates warning them to be on the lookout for soldiers who supported the Family Research Council and the American Family Association, both of which are Christian organizations, who speak for traditional sexual ethics. Uh, the officer labeled both organizations as hate groups. Now, of course, you know, I'll tell you stuff like that. I, I, can go out, I, mean, I find all sorts of stories like that. And obviously, none of those things rise.
rise to the level of beheadings, right? I mean, okay, so let's, let's, you know. But they show that in the marketplace of ideas in America, orthodox Christian belief is rapidly becoming something that's pushed to the margins and increasingly unacceptable to a lot of the powers that be. And I think it's important for us to understand that many, if, if not the majority of people around us no longer share common basic beliefs with us and are increasingly wanting to not even allow what they would claim is a pluralistic belief system that includes Christian belief as a possibility in the marketplace of ideas. Well, what does that have to do with the seven churches? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Remember last week in the letter to the church at Ephesus, we learned that one of the things Jesus expects of his church is that we would stand firm on the truth. But we are to stand firm on the truth in a loving way, not an obnoxious one. Knowing the truth does not excuse us from love. It doesn't mean we get to be obnoxious. It doesn't mean we get to hate. But even as we seek to be full of truth and love, which is, is Jesus' encouragement there, there are going to be people that are not going to like that. And because of that, there is the possibility of, of a variety of forms of, of what could rise for, to be persecution. Now, of course, the early church was no stranger to persecution. And the church at Smyrna was especially hard hit. Now let me tell you a little bit about the city of Smyrna. Now I got a question last week, just, and I really appreciated this question. This is a very good question. No one, no one in my 28 years of pastoring has ever asked me before. I thought it was a great question because it means that for 28 years, people have either just ignored what I've said or just accepted what I've said without question. But Alberto grabs me after church last Sunday and he says, so pastor, you told us all this historical stuff about Ephesus, where did you get that? And I said, oh, well, you know, historians put together stuff and commentaries, and I got a variety of commentaries, and you can put it together from there. No one's ever asked me that before. And I'm glad you asked me that, because that probably means, I, I mean, I'm glad that the rest of you trust me enough that, you know, you're not checking me on, on everything I say, but that was, a great, that was a great question. So here's some historical stuff on the city of Smyrna that I got out of commentary, who have collected historical data from historians. So here we go, Smyrna, right? Right there, Ephesus was here, we're going north. Not to Alaska, but to Smyrna. Uh, <laughs> Boy, did I date myself with that? That was a good, that was a good one, thank you. Smyrna, Smyrna was a very ancient city in Asia Minor. It was probably founded around 3000 BC. It had been destroyed in 600 BC and was rebuilt by one of Alexander's successors around 290 BC. Now this was a city that was fanatical in its devotion to Rome. They built a temple in 195 BC at the beginning of the Roman Empire to worship Rome, a temple to the empire itself. In AD 26, they built an, a temple to Emperor Tiberius. It was considered one of the most beautiful cities in Asia Minor. It was a noted science, uh, center for science and medicine. And we know from here, what we're about to read, that the church was very poor. 
And that uh, the word, when he talks about poverty, when we get to reading that, that letter to the church in Smyrna, uh, the word there indicated beggars. That's what's meant there when he says poverty. They were, they were on that level of poverty. Maybe many of them had been slaves, that sort of thing. Now, for us to fully understand Jesus' commendation to them and his warning, we need to understand the sort of environment Smyrna faced and its hostility toward their belief in Jesus. So we're going to talk a little bit about the kind of persecution that probably happened in a place like Smyrna. Now, by the end of the first century, the Jewish population, especially after the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, remember the church starts in Jerusalem, late 30s AD, expands throughout the empire. 70 AD, Rome had had enough of Israel's shenanigans and destroyed the temple, destroyed Jerusalem, killed a bunch of people, that sort of thing. And in that, the Jews had become increasingly hostile to the Christians, which were now completely pretty much separated from the Jews. And so they would accuse Christians of all sorts of things. They would accuse them of immorality, and they would accuse them of breaking up homes and political disloyalty. Even accuse them of cannibalism, right? Because during their worship service, they kept talking about eating the body and blood of Jesus. And they would accuse them of cannibalism. So as Christianity grew, the hostility increased. Now compounding that is that in the Roman Empire by this time, the worship of the emperor had become so important that it was enforced by capital punishment. So if you did not worship the emperor, if you're not willing to refer to the emperor as God or Lord in the divine sense, you couldn't very well be executed. And of course, Christians would not worship the Roman gods or the Roman Empire, emperor, and so they were branded as atheists. And you could be a lot of things in the Roman Empire. You could worship, you could, you could be a Zoroastrian, you could be worship Zeus, you could worship toenail clippings. As long as you were willing to also call the emperor Lord. But if you were not called the emperor Lord, that was Smyrna was actually among the first cities where Christians were fed to wild beasts and they were burned at the stake. Um, of course, many of you probably know the story of the bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp, who in 155 AD was burned at the stake. We'll talk about him in a bit. So understanding that's kind of their situation, let's look at Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So here's a church, the poor, right? They're described as beggars. They're persecuted. Yet they receive, unlike Ephesus, no rebuke from Jesus. Jesus doesn't tell them they're doing, there's anything they got to correct or do differently. Instead, they get a commendation and a warning. He tells them they're rich. Because they're rich in faith. Even though they're poor in material things. He's aware of their faithful trust in him. 
despite some really horrible circumstances. And he's aware that they continue to, to seek to follow him no matter what. But then he gives them this warning, right? That their persecution is actually going to intensify, according to verse 10. And he exhorts them to stay faithful. I keep, you know, when he says that, I'm thinking, you see, I you know, imagine being in the church at Smyrna, and this letter comes rolling in, right? It says for 10 days you're going to be persecuted. I, I'd be thinking, I think I'm going to go see my aunt in Pergamum <laughs> for the next couple of weeks. I'm going to hang out up there and see what happens, right? Tell them they're going to have some, some tribulation. Tell them we're going to get thrown in prison. He exhorts them to stay faithful. And he promises them something. He says, I promise to those who stay faithful the, the crown of life. He promises them the stephanos. Right? The victory wreath. But that's because that's what the stephanos is. It's the wreath that the victors at the Olympic Games got. Go through all that training and run a marathon or whatever, and what do you get? An olive tree headband. Ooh, yeah. Not even a gold medal. You just get all the tree headband. I mean, I wouldn't even run to the refrigerator for that. But that's what they got, right? Yeah, the wreath in the ancient Olympic game. That's what that's what it is. It's the victory wreath. Because they've overcome their persecution. So one of the things Jesus, I think, wants for his church that we can take from this is, is that we are to stand firm to resist the tide of the world, even if Smyrna's persecution is related to their refusal to accept the cultural mandates of the Roman world in the areas of worship and the Roman pluralism. They weren't telling anybody else they couldn't do anything. They said, we're not going to partake. We're not going to be part of that. Because remember, in Rome, you can worship whoever you want as long as you also worship the emperor as God. And that's how the Roman creed became what? Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord. But no Christian would say that. Christian would only say, Christos Curios, Christ is Lord. And in fact, that's how they would, they would they would tell. They would take the Christians and they would have them in prison or whatever, and all they would do is just say, just say, Kaiser Curios, we'll let you go. And they would refuse. Because they knew Jesus demanded God begins to reveal himself to Moses and, and on, that God has always made the point that we're going to have no other gods besides the true God himself. Now we, we could face a similar sort of persecution, at least a similar situation. In modern America, we, we have the same kind of pluralism. You can worship as you like, but can't you? There's nobody telling you, I mean, I'm not wrong, I say there's no one telling me I can't worship you. But publicly, there's an increasing demand that we be tolerant of all other beliefs. But not tolerant in the sense like, you believe what you want, I believe what I want. Tolerance is defined as accepting as valid and good all other beliefs. Which doesn't sound like tolerance to me. If we don't, then we may be persecuted, humiliated, call a bigot, whatever phobic. If we disagree with any of the current cultural thought mandates, and they change over time, 
we run the risk of being labeled as hateful and horrible and tolerant and evil and oppressive and nasty people who smell bad. And I may be some of those things, but I shower every day. <laughs> All around the world, people are martyred for the faith. You know, in fundamental Islam, fundamental Islam countries, you know, conversion and evangelism are both capital crimes. It, it wasn't much more than 30 or 40 years ago that in the former Soviet Union, pastors and missionaries were sent to Siberia. Remember, I've talked before how when I taught in Ukraine in 1999, I had a guy in my class who spent 20 years in prison just for believing in Jesus and telling other people about Jesus. Now, we're not, we're not at that level here. It, it is extremely unlikely, as far as I know, here in, in America, that any of us risk being fed to wild, wild beasts. I, I mean, my dog might go after you and come to my house and try to lick you to death, but it's part of the wild beasts that you're probably going to run into. But that doesn't mean we don't face other less lethal forms of persecution, ridicule, and rejection, and marginalization, and these constant accusations of intolerance, loss of job or status, family grief, legal action even. Think about the bakers and the wedding photographers, tied up for years in court. Or here's an interesting example, true story. In the Temecula Valley School District, a first grader named Bryn Williams, teacher gave the class an assignment. They got a share bag. Each teacher, the teacher gave each child in the class a bag with the instruction to find something at home that represented a family Christmas tradition, to put it in the bag and bring it to school and share it. Right? You can already see the disaster that's about to ensue in the story. So Bryn took the star from the top of the family's Christmas tree to represent her family's tradition of remembering why Christmas is celebrated. And Bryn worked diligently on a one-minute presentation, which, I mean, if you're in first grade, you have to stand up in the class and talk for one minute. That's, that's like an eternity, right? For, for, some, for some of you, having to stand up and talk in front of anybody for one minute would be an eternity. For some of us, we don't know when to shut up. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so Bryn, Bryn worked very hard on her family's Christmas tradition to remember the birth of Jesus because the star represents the star of Bethlehem. And so Bryn gets to school, and it's December 19th, and at school, boy, was she in for a surprise. She gets up to do her presentation, and she says, our Christmas tradition is to put a star on top of our tree. The star is called the Star of Bethlehem. The three kings followed the star to find baby Jesus, the Savior of the world. At that point, she was interrupted by the teacher who said, stop! Take your seat! told the entire class that Bryn was not allowed to talk about the Bible or Jesus or share any verses from the Bible. You're a mean one. In this case, this is a good sign. The Liberty Institute used to publish, they don't do it anymore, a yearly summary of hostility toward religion in America. The last report I could find was from 2017. It was 420 pages long of stories. The 2014 edition was only 72 pages. So either they were getting better at writing their report, or they were finding more stuff happening. And these reports outline all sorts of this kind of religious intolerance in America. And, and, and their equal opportunities, I mean, some of them were also intolerance toward like Islamic people, and that sort of thing too. So that was also an important 
body that becomes the tongue lies. Now, the scriptures tell us that as the end of time comes near, things are going to get increasingly uncomfortable for believers. 2 Timothy 3 says, understand this. In the last days, whatever those are, there's going to come times of difficulty. People are going to be lovers of self and lovers of money and proud and arrogant and abusive, disobedient to their parents. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. People are going to get ugly. We should be prepared for that. And Jesus tells us what we should do to be prepared for that. He gives us some ideas what to do in the things he tells the church of Smyrna. And the first thing we need to do is to make sure we find our hope and courage in him. Verses 8 and 11 say, To the angel of the church of Smyrna write the words of the first and last who died and came to life. Well, that's clearly God made Jesus. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Because Jesus has conquered death. There's, there's nothing more to fear. There's nothing to fear. So, so I hope you're not sitting there this morning as I tell you some of this stuff and think, ah, oh, that Pastor Orville, man, he's trying to gin up the fear. No, that's some other folks that like to gin up the fear. That's not me. I'm telling you, Jesus has conquered death. There's nothing more to fear. It says the person who overcomes, well, what's the person who overcomes? The person who has faith in Christ, is not going to face the second death. Well, what's that all about? Well, the second death is that judgment of being sent away into an eternity without God. That's why Jesus says in John 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die, never face that second death, that ultimate death. Think about all the things Jesus faced. Ridiculed. Mocked. His own family rejected him. They thought he was nuts. One of his 12 closest friends betrayed him for a pittance. He was tortured, publicly humiliated, hung on a cross while people jeered, and while even one of the other people that was being executed with him mocked him. And beyond all that, he bore the punishment for our sins in his death. But we know that he conquered death. The death could not stop him or hold him or keep him. And when we put our faith in him, can't stop or hold or keep us either. We become these overcomers. Overcomers of death through him so that no matter what we face, we know the future is secure. And that's why he mentions the second death here. Because that is the eternal death from which there is no coming back. Now, you know, the, the Lord Terry, at some point, not to be morbid, all of us are going to die. Physically. Hate to think about it. I want to think about it. I'm not trying to rush into it. It's going to happen, though. We've all had people, loved ones, have died. But it's one thing to die and to rise again in the resurrection. It's either another thing to die and eventually face the second death. He 
that's eternal death for which there's no coming back. And that's why in Jesus, it's where hope and courage live. That's where hope and courage are. They're in him, because through him we conquer death. We conquer everything. We don't, we don't have to fear. At the absolute worst, we could lose our physical life. Now that's terrible, that's horrible. You know, I don't, I don't want to make light of anyone who's been martyred. That's a horrible thing. But there are worse things. Think about how these early believers faced death in these Roman arenas when they were martyred for their faith in Jesus. How did they do it? They found their, they, they put their hope and their courage directly in him. So Polycarp, I promise we come back to him, right? He was the great leader of the church at Smyrna. He was arrested. He's an old man. He's 86 when, when this happened. He's arrested and he's offered the chance to recant his faith. And of course, the, the Roman leader, the proconsul, comes and says, you're an old dude. What, what, what's, your, what's your problem? Just recant your faith and don't be tortured and die. Polycarp answers, 86 years have I served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? His hope and his courage were firmly in Jesus himself. Now it's having that hope and courage in Jesus that helps us also to do the other thing that we should do, and that's to stand firm in love. That's kind of a principle from last week. Remember, we always stand for the truth in love. So besides finding our courage and our hope in Jesus, we continue to love other people no matter what. Look at what Jesus tells us. You've heard it said, this is Matthew 5, you shall love your, enemy, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What good is it just to love the people
drive badly around. Okay? But I'm not trying, I'm happy with the flesh. Because Jesus says that through his supernatural love lived up for us, I can bless those who hate me. I, we can bless those who try to do us wrong. Even those who would want us marginalized. Even those who would want us unemployed or would call us bigots and haters. If we're unwilling to stand firm in Jesus' love and love other people, it really becomes less important how they treat us. Because what's really important is how we love them despite how they treat us. We need to love them. See, regardless. Or regardless, depending on which one you consider the rules. Closure to the little story here of where love conquered persecution. So, in Cambodia, you may recall back in the days, Khmer Rouge was led by a man named Pol Pot, right? Overthrew the Cambodian government in 1975. He starved millions of his own people. Uh, he murdered Christians and Muslims. He hated both religions. Eventually, that regime fell. In 1995, one of Pol Pot's torturers was led to Christ by a Cambodian pastor who was living in Los Angeles and met him and shared the gospel with him. He came to Christ and acknowledged his sin and became a believer. Somebody who was formerly tortured and killed hard to imagine that without this pastor's humility and love, I mean, this pastor had been from Cambodia, had been someone who had been targeted for elimination. This other man who had been the targeter would have never known forgiveness and never known the love of Christ. See, when enemies become brothers, Expect as time goes on, the world around us, even here in America, is going to continue to get increasingly hostile to the truth of God. And that's okay. Because we serve a risen Savior who has conquered death and has conquered all these things. And when we find our hope and our courage in Jesus, and we stand firm in loving others no matter what, especially those who hate us. We have nothing and no one to fear, no matter what we might face in this life. Let's pray. Father, it becomes increasingly clear that there is a rise in hostility towards those who would be called by the name of Jesus. It's clear that, that sometimes we're our, our own worst enemies because we're obnoxious about Jesus. About truth, but let us not be like that. But instead, let us be people who, in that truth, are people of love. Let us be prepared through the hope and courage that's found in Jesus, because He has conquered all things, and there's really nothing that can long term harm us. Because through Jesus, the second death is conquered, death of separation from you to eternity. Even if we face physical death in this life, that can't hold us, because Jesus has already set us free from that. 
those who, who maybe downright hate us, who maybe think we're, we're bigots and haters and horrible people. Help us to prove them wrong by allowing us to be filled with the love of Jesus for everyone that we know. And we give you the glory for it.